0: My guest today was introduced to me by my dear friend, Emma Gannon, who was my guest here on slow-mo in episode 112 back in April. And she spoke about her new book, Olive, if you remember, and where she was so eloquently referring to the idea of being childless and the choice that she personally made and sort of portrayed in the character of Olive as a woman that makes that choice to not have children consciously. And I think it was an episode that actually opened the eyes of a lot of women, maybe not on the exact topic, but the idea of being able to make their own choices of how they want to make decisions around their own lives without the pressure of society in general. Of course, Emma's Olive then went to become a a bestseller and, and did really, really well. Emma was kind enough to introduce me to Pamela. Paul. And Pamela probably has one of the best jobs on the planet, I believe. She is the editor of the New York Times Book Review, which basically means that she oversees all the book coverage at the New York Times. And she's the host of the weekly book review podcast for the Times. She may not be reading all those books, but to be in charge of what the public gets to know about the books of the year. And of course, the New York Times reviews are definitely some of the most important reviews probably anywhere in the world. It's definitely an incredible responsibility and an amazing job to be doing. But that's, if you want her day job, her passion and other job, if you want, is she's an author and editor of seven books, Rectangle Time, How to Raise a Reader, My Life with Bob, the Starter Marriage, which I think is a very interesting book, The Starter Marriage and the Future of Matrimony, Pornified and Parenting, which basically have been covering so many different ideas in so many different formats. She's a prolific writer in so many ways, which is definitely something that inspires me. And her latest book called The 100 Things We've Lost to the Internet, got me at hello. Like literally, oh my God, that's an amazing title of a book and an amazing idea of a romanticized view, if you want, of all of the beautiful things we had before the internet replaced them. It's going to be an amazing conversation. I hope you will enjoy it with Pamela Paul. For many, many years in my life, I thought that my job as the chief business officer of Google X was the best job on the planet. I was wrong. I totally was wrong. Your job is the best job on the planet, isn't it?
1: Actually, I I agree. But I say that without knowing exactly what your job at Google X was. That said, in an isolation chamber, I, I do think I have the best job on the planet.
0: So I I was working with the smartest people on the planet to try and invent things that actually are good for the planet, which Mm -hmm. is totally a great privilege, but I don't know if I ever said that in public. When I was a child and people would ask me and say, what is your superpower, your dream superpower, I would say, I want to be Rain Man. And the idea was I wanted to read every book that ever comes out. Now, isn't that what your job is all about? Like you read books? and see if you like them?
1: No. Actually, (laughs) that's not my... (laughs) So maybe I don't have the best job in the entire world. What I do is I oversee... All of the books coverage at the New York Times. The job you're probably thinking of is the job of one of our book critics who, uh, whose job it is to read a book a week and write a review of that book. I guess minus the writing part, uh, if that's not your thing. <laughs> yeah. But what I end up doing is I oversee a large team that includes those critics and the editors of the book review and a group that is reporting as well on books and on public. Publishing. So I don't know if that makes it a lot worse and maybe reduces any sense of envy that you might have, but, and maybe it just sounds busier, but <laughs> I do is. do a lot of reading.
0: So do you guys get together and like talk about those books before the reviews are issued?
1: We do. We do a lot of talking. I would say the major talking that we do, and that is really really gratifying and interesting and edifying for me and I think for everyone else in the team is that the book review side of the desk at the Times decides every year which are its 10 best books of the year. And that is actually a year-long process in which we get together as a group and we have two-hour-long meetings to discuss books that we want to nominate and then over the course of the year, we're reading those books and then editors will come in and say what they thought of the book. And one thing that I like about it is that it's a very eclectic, diverse group of editors at the book review with very strong opinions of their own and <laughs> yes. not afraid to voice them, even if they totally contradict what one of their colleagues just said. So you'll have one editor say, this book is original and, and I think quite brilliant. And another one will say it's Totally pedantic and predictable, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. so that that I think makes it interesting, and and just goes to show like we could all read the same book and come away with something quite different,
0: which I think is definitely an author's biggest challenge, if you ask me, because when I'm writing, I'm definitely not trying to please everyone, if you think about it, because if you do, then you ha- you end up with something very very bland and. If you try to please everyone, you please no one, really. And so that's the idea, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I'm going to paraphrase badly something I just read in Hervé L'Atelier's book The Anomaly which won the Prix Goncourt in 2020 and was just translated into English this fall and he says something like the reader never reads the author's book and the author never writes the reader's book and i think there's a lot of truth to that i mean i've talked to authors who have told stories of situations, like a reader will come up to them after reading and say, I really loved your novel. I loved that it was a story of redemption. And the author will think to himself, "Redemption? it's a story about (laughs) revenge. (laughs) (laughs) What are you talking about? What book did you read? (laughs) Um, And, you know, I think when you think about it logically, of course, it has to be true because unlike other forms of storytelling, like film or television, both of which are forms of media that I love, a lot of what, you get out of a book is something that you put in because you're not seeing it, you're not hearing it, you're not smelling it you're imparting all of those things, you, the reader. And that means that a Nigerian 15-year-old girl is going to read the same book very differently from a 53-year-old stockbroker in New York. And they can read, let's say the book is, I don't know, David Mitchell's Ghostwritten or Cloud Atlas, you know, read that same book and they're going to have a very different impression from it because they're putting a good deal of the story in. And I think, that's one of the things that makes stories in written form so powerful it's because you're co-creating it really with the author in a way that in a film so much of the video and the audio and the the cinematography and the choreography and the actors voices and their what you know about their off-screen personalities so much of that is brought into it whereas on the page it's the reader bringing that in
0: Mm, I love that i th- I think that's truly the the joy of reading is it's it's almost your own individual world differently every single time I think I would use this opportunity to tell my listeners that who may have not have missed that on uh, on social media that scary smart my book this last year was actually nominated by the Times of London as one of the top 10 business books of the year. And I have to say, interesting. I mean, we're going to talk about you as an author now, Pamela. I have to say that for me, I think the honor that came from that was definitely much better than selling more books or getting revenues out of books or whatever. I felt that this meant that the book made a difference, that people actually saw something useful in it. So that kind of power, if I may use the word for you to make authors celebrate and dance in the streets or make them not really very proud of their work because of your reviews. Have you had any stories where something that you reviewed actually made a big difference because you nominated it or whatever?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that critical acclaim and revenue is really important to most writers because, to state the obvious, being a writer generally does not pay that well, and it probably Doesn't pays pay a large. lot less well than yeah. working at Google. Um, and <laughs> so uh, you yeah, know, many of these writers are just scraping by and very, very pleased to make a lot of money if they can, even if it didn't mean critical acclaim. Although, of course, even just having one of those things is rewarding. I think that in the United States, at least, and I do think around the world, the the New York Times has a certain amount of power, not just because of the institution, but also because the competition, unfortunately, at least in terms of newspapers, has really atrophied as local journalism and local newspapers have been either eliminated altogether or their arts and books coverage has been reduced so dramatically that writers aren't getting as many reviews as they used to. And so the impact of a single review can be much greater. And the impact of, I think, being on a list like the 10 best books, the 100 notable books, we know has an impact on sales from publishers. I don't really have the time to sort of like go on Amazon and and, and do the comparisons before and after the announcement and, and that sort of thing. but But we have had situations, and it's been quite notable in the last few years because of printing shortages, that there are not enough printers really to print the number of books. That's a great thing that people still want books. It's unfortunate that, you know, a number of years ago when people thought that the ebook was going to completely eat up all of print a lot of printers around the country closed. And so you don't actually have enough printers often to print books. So there were shortages when we announced the 10 best because the publishers couldn't get the books printed fast enough to reach consumer needs. So we know that. And then, you know, of course, on a more human level, which I think is probably what you're interested in, I hear directly from authors and from the editors who are really close to the project, just how meaningful getting a positive review or just a review that really understood what the author was trying to do, what that means. And I think as an author, I, I totally get it. It's, I mean, it's even better to get a review, you know, it's great to get a positive review, but to get one when you feel like, wow, the reviewer actually crystallized something that I, maybe I didn't even know I was trying to do, but actually now that I read this, I think, yes, in fact, (laughs) that was part of my intent. (laughs) That's really great to feel, to feel seen as you're being read.
0: I'm totally with you. I actually suffered every time when I got major reviews or major viral content on the internet, every time the book would run out of stock immediately. I actually remember vividly on Solve for Happy, my first book, when I would do a big talk, let's say in front of 10,000 people or more, yeah, it basically. Many people would think that this is a topic that's interesting for them. And if they go and look for the print version very, very quickly, if a thousand of them order, Amazon will run out of stock or whatever. Let's talk about you as an author, because I have to say you're really, I mean, seven books in, in how long?
1: Actually, it's eight. But If you count oh, my it? picture book for children, yes. Okay. My first book came out in 2002. And at that time, I didn't have a full time day job. So it was a little bit easier. So I did the book in 2002, 2005 and 2008. It was really every three years. And then I started working at the New York Times. And so there is a big pause in which I'm working and not writing as much. And then the next book to come out, I think came out in 2013 or 2014. And I've written a book maybe every year or two since then, but it squeezed into the margins of my day because I have a very full-time job. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
0: So how do you do that? I mean, do you write every day? Do you write weekends? Do you just sit for a crunch of two weeks and and then not write for a while? What do you do?
1: No, no. I also have three full time children. So they're getting older now. So it's a little bit easier. But, you know, what I used to say is it's a question of like what you don't do. There was a story that. David Sedaris told in one of his books in which he's driving around France with some driver who's been hired. And the driver has a theory that there are sort of four different areas of life or three different areas. It's like health and work and love. And in order to kind of get by, you have to just give up on one of them, you know, just let it go. So like you can handle work and love, but not say health or some other combination. And I I feel like what I have had to let go of in order to write is sleep and fun. And so I don't sleep as much as I would like to and i don't get to watch all the tv shows and see the movies that everyone else is talking about and i definitely don't play video games and so i try to a lot a specific time in my day to writing and that time pre-pandemic used to be on my commute and that was very oh, easy then mm-hmm. to control because I had a train ride and it had a beginning and an end. And it enforced a very specific and intense focus is that flow situation. And I had it twice a day. And that was really useful because it really compartmentalized it. During the pandemic, I was in the middle of this new book, a hundred things we've Lost to the internet, and I still had a lot of writing to do and so when i didn't have the commute, I just blocked out this will be from say six a m until nine a m lightly interrupted by injections of my day job at the New York Times because of course, news doesn't stop and then again, at the other end of the day, and I also have to say. Having children who are now slightly older and enjoy sleeping in was very helpful because on the weekends, then I would also wake up between five and six and start writing. And it would be a few hours before anyone else was had any interest or awareness of what I was <laughs> yeah. doing.
0: Yeah, I think that's actually really eye-opening, the way you say the train, ride. I struggle personally because if I sit down and write as I wish three hours a day, I would really have... At least a book a year or maybe even a little more than a book a year. But I find it really difficult to allocate that time other than if you, like you said, you know, if there was an event that made you allocate the time. And you write about so many different topics, Pamela. I mean, it's almost difficult to expect what your next book is going to be about.
1: Well, I can tell you my next book is going to be a picture book, which is what the previous book was before, A Hundred Things We've Lost to the Internet.
0: Yeah. Point made. Okay. It is a picture book, but about? It
1: is going to be a picture book. It's a picture book. The next one is a picture book. I've actually written two picture books, but the first one to come out is called The Path. And it won't be out for a few years. It's almost crazy to to talk about it, but it is inspired. It's a little bit of a quarantine inspiration because during the pandemic, one of the few places to go was outside. And so it's about a path, whether it's in a town or a city a walking path, a bike path, a skating path. We all see a path like that in a different way, depending on your mode of transport, your mindset. And so it's about different people mostly children because it's a picture book for kids using this path in different ways and when you are on your own path right you sometimes depending again on your mindset you can see other people on the path as a kind of obstacle it's the pedestrian (laughs) car conundrum when you're driving a car pedestrians are terrible and they're disobeying the rules and like why can't they wait to cross when you're trying to make a right on red and then of course when you're the pedestrian the cars are the enemy and so the path is kind of (laughs) looking at that you know you know the conundrum from a child's sort of view when you are biking or learning how to bike right it's really disconcerting to have someone walking a dog on a very long leash you know and that like dog could dart in front of you so and then it's about rethinking that mindset so that you don't necessarily see other people who are doing things a little bit differently from you as being barriers or or people that are standing in your way but to try to see them as people who are just doing things a little bit differently <laughs>
0: Beautiful. I absolutely love it actually. It's a very, very interesting idea. Let's talk about a hundred things that we lost to the internet because it's a hundred things and so many of them are so interesting. And it's a bit of I don't know. I mean it's a book of wonder to me because I go like, yeah, I actually, right? But it's also a little sad because some of the stuff that we lost was so beautiful, so romantic, if you want. Or maybe I romanticize it now because I I look back at it and go like, "Ah, I wish I had those things today. What made you write it? Why do you think nobody else wrote it, which I think is really quite eye-opening? And what do you think was the interesting bits in it?
1: So yeah, it's a hundred things. Each one is a short chapter, some a little bit longer than others. The idea really was, like many people, and I've noticed, (laughs) I've taken note of the fact that my life has changed since the internet has come here. I lived before the internet and things operated really differently. I could, for example, just be in one place at one time. I had an attention span. I could go to, after college, I moved to Northern Thailand. I didn't have a cell phone. I didn't have the internet. It didn't exist. I didn't even have a landline. I was totally disconnected from everyone. You could do that, right? You could do that Mm -hmm. without it being like a constant daily effort not to look at your phone because there was no phone. (laughs) And I say phone, but what I mean really is of course a portable internet because these aren't really telephones. And So I've noticed these things, and as a journalist and a writer, I've written about them, sort of intersection of technology and life and the ways in which things have changed. But I think so many of us, in the face of this relentless and very fast change, kind of overwhelming, it feels like the Industrial Revolution times a thousand and at a thousand times speed – I'm constantly in fast forward. I'm constantly looking ahead and desperately just trying to catch up. Like, wait a minute, like, let's just take payment. I still write a check. Or when I go out with a friend to dinner, I'm like, we could just use two credit cards, but everyone else will use Zelle and Pen Pal and Venmo and figure out ways to exchange money. And just recently a friend in Europe said, do you have Tiki? And I thought, God, what's Tiki? I don't even know what what, what is Tiki. And so, you know, you're constantly trying to, to just stay on top of it. And I think every once in a while, right, will sort of pause and regular people and just be like wait how did we get here but i think what we do less often and what i wanted to do in this book is really rewind and then settle there for a moment and say okay what is it we used to do like how did this used to work because we become habituated so quickly to technology i mean that's why technology has been and by technology i say mean really mean technology companies. That's why they've been so successful is that they've been really very smart about ingraining habits. So we get these habits, we build these habits with exquisite and efficient speed. And then it's really hard to remember, like, okay, wait a minute, before I walked out of a place, and I immediately plugged an address into my app to figure out like, where am I? Where do I need to go? How do I get there? What did we used to do? What did we used to do before there was a Lyft? And before there was an Uber? What did you do when you were in a place with no cabs? How did we get around? How did I know how to get to where I was? How did I know where my kid was after school? Did we just not know? oh yeah, we just didn't know. And then to sort of (laughs) dwell in that a minute and be like, what does that mean that we didn't really know where our kids were? How does that change things? So that's what I try to do. And and really to kind of catalog and then explore each of these things, whether they're physical things like bad photos or Rolodex or medical forms or flea market finds, or whether they are sort of more ideas, like boredom and getting lost, or whether they're like these relationship things like ex-boyfriends or high school reunions or the family meal, you know, the family meal. Only 28% of people ban computers, the internet, phones, we call them, at the dinner table. But hey, (laughs) that's minority. So that, that just changes the family meal. So I wanted to catalog them, and then kind of just explore, like, what was that like? Not just for those of us who are maybe slightly older and remember what it was like a little bit, but also for people that are growing up who are digital natives, what it was like before. So that was the general idea behind the book.
0: such a beautiful way of looking at it. I mean, I normally get asked the question of, is technology good or bad to me? And I think from now on, I'll answer by saying, have you read Pamela's book? Because it's not about being good or bad, but there was a different way of life. And and when you say, I didn't know where my children were, when my children were children, I think there was the internet, but still it wasn't as pervasive as it is today. It wasn't in everyone's hands.
1: Right, they didn't carry it around.
0: Yeah, and when you when you start to think about that, we just had to accept the fact that it's okay for them to be in a safe place without us now this no longer is the case you just said ex-boyfriend oh that actually i never thought of it's like so what happens to relationships that get separated or when you were in a different country and you no longer how was a long a long distance relationship remember when uh, facebook and whatsapp and what have you i think that it was a few months ago when when those things didn't work for like a few hours. Mm -hmm. And I was actually going on a date with someone, a first date. And I, we haven't met before. And I promise you for a few, like maybe half an hour, 15 minutes, I was like, so what do I do now? Like, how do I even get in touch with her? How do I make sure that we're there at the same time, forgetting that I could simply actually use the same number instead of WhatsApp and call her. Right. Which is so weird when you really think about it. It's like today, actually, my phone broke, my phone screen broke, so I couldn't use WhatsApp. And like life completely stops. It's like I'm going to meet someone, but I don't know how to tell them that I'm 10 minutes late. What happened to calling? Which, by the way, superseded talking. Yeah, you could be 10 minutes late and then hug them and say, I'm really sorry, and then start talking there. But everything has changed so much. It's crazy, really,
1: yeah, and what's crazy, too, is how quickly we've forgotten, so I <laughs> you know, I wanted to kind of like give a hundred little reminders, and of course, it's not even really a hundred because, as with many of these things, each one
0: is a hundred on its own, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, contains kind of multitudes and and that's part of thinking about it, not as positive or negative, but really is a little bit more complicated than that, so like one of the things is being the only one, so being the only one can be really positive. It can be like, wow, I am the only one who makes cookies and decorates them in the shape of constellations and then puts them all together in a platter and serves it next X, Y, and Z way. And that's my original unique thing. But if you go online, of course, you find out, no, 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 no. Not only are you not the only one who has decided to create constellation cookies, but there are hundreds of other people. They do it much better than you. They've been doing it for longer and they have more happy customers. In fact, they're making a ton of money and you're just doing it for fun. You know, so it can become negative too. But again, it can be positive. It can be, wow, it's terrible to feel like you're the only one whose son just got diagnosed with a rare genetic disorder and you just don't even know where to begin. But we're never that person anymore because you go online, you Google the genetic disorder, and suddenly there are fundraising groups. There are chat rooms where other parents are talking about it. There are places where you can ask doctors who specialize in it. You can sign up for a research trial online. And so you're not the only one. And that's positive. These things are all a little bit like you just kind of spin it and look at it another angle. And depending on the person and the situation, it can be a loss. It could be a negative loss, but it can be a positive loss, too. It could be be, oh, good. We don't have to be the only one anymore. Or an, oh, I'm not the only one anymore.
0: <laughs> I'm not special anymore. That's right. So when you, when you really think about it, I mean, I want to jump into a few of them as well, your favorites. But when you really think about it, if I gave you that sort of red pill and told you, look, this was all a dream, take this red pill and you're back in 19, let's choose 82, best year of music ever. So would you go back? <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, I would. Would you? I would. I would. Eileen. But, you know, I've been an old man for a really long time. <laughs> and so, <laughs> you know, that like a lot of that is just about me. Again, I know other people's answers to that question would be different. But a lot of the things that I care about as a writer, as a journalist, as a book author, those things, those paper, those book things, I miss. And I think the world is. The worst for it, I miss the fact that we used to have local newspapers, local radio, local television that reported on what was going on at a local level that held people to account on the one hand, people in power, but that also spread and created a sense of community and that also, let's say, in terms of culture and the arts, allowed dancers, singers, writers, actors, other kinds of creators in a small community to get feedback, reviews, notice in their local paper in a way that, you know, the New York Times is not going to report on actors in a local production in a small town in Indiana. But there used to be local papers that would do that. And that's all pre-internet. So I miss that. I miss, I liked looking things up in the encyclopedia. I liked the slowness. I liked the depth. I think that in gaining, ac- I mean, look, at the same time, as I said, it's complicated and I'm the biggest, you know, I'm just as big a hypocrite as everyone else, because my favorite thing about the internet is being able to find the answer to anything. And yet here I am saying I liked it before you couldn't. <laughs> so I recognize these contradictions. But that said, I liked the old timey times a little bit better than I like the new
0: yeah i I'm the title of this podcast is Slow Mo, so there is definitely a, a joy to doing things a little slower i I wonder I mean when you look at it, yeah I'm like you i'm you know I was dreaming of having the superpower of being Rain Man and reading so many things and having access to everything. Well, Google does that really. You can ask anything and you'll get the answer. you don't have to have read it until then, but then I wonder I mean. In my mind, it seems that what we're doing is we're getting so much more that we might not really need. And for it, we're paying the price of things that we really, really enjoyed, we really valued, which were more the human things, I think. Would you agree?
1: Uh, Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, it's interesting when you think about Google, for example, and I'm going to pick one thing, which is Google Earth. Google Earth is really cool. I never go on it. I never go on it. Every time I do go on it, which again is, I think, fewer than 10 times I've been on that website. I'm like, this is really cool. I could spend a lot of time here. This is really amazing. It's just like it's so much. And I also have a really great atlas in one of my kids' rooms. And I actually spend more time with that atlas. I like... The slowness of it, I like. I don't know. There's just a limit to it that's reassuring in a way. I and mean, it's already really big—an atlas. It's a big, big atlas, beautifully produced, large size atlas. But I prefer that. And here's something else that I don't look up on Google Earth or anywhere else on the internet. And that is, I mentioned earlier, moving to Thailand, northern Thailand after college. I lived there for a year and town, and I only went back once, three years later in 1997. And there had been four 7-Elevens in that town when I left. (laughs) And when I came back in 1997, there were 11. And I haven't been back since. And I don't want to know how many 7-Elevens are there. I don't want to know that the street, which was the biggest, busiest street in town, where I used to take my moped to get to the fruit orchard that I lived on that was outside of town. And that sometimes... Um, One time in particular, there was a water buffalo charging down the highway in the opposite direction, which is slightly terrifying when you're on a moped. I don't want to know that now there's no water buffaloes within 20 miles. Maybe there are, maybe there aren't. I don't want to know. I don't want to know. I don't want to interfere with my memory of what it was when I was there. So I've never Googled the town where I live. I've never Googled to see, oh, is that really great restaurant that I loved in that garden still open? Is there still that great Khao Soi place on the corner by the sort of main gate in the moat that is in the center of the town? Is the moat even there? I don't know. And I don't want to know. I like to sort of keep that unadorned, not updated image of what that town was in my mind. And then I think if I ever do go back, let's say, if I do go back to Thailand and I bring my three children and bring my husband and I say, like, look, this is where I used to live, maybe it will be totally different. But I would like to encounter that difference in the place, in the moment, to see it, to smell it, to feel it. Why preview it? Online, one of the chapters in this book is, or a couple. One is being in the moment. The other is the view. Like we so often look to see, like whoa, what will the view be like from that resort on that beach in the Peloponnese in Greece? Like, what will that room look like in this Airbnb we're thinking about running. Like, we already know what it's going to be before we get there. So I think back. Remember what it was like when you didn't know and you were surprised? Remember surprise, (laughs) the mystery, you know, being pleasantly surprised. Sometimes, of course, you were really unhappily surprised. It was not good news, but just not knowing. It's kind of, it's something you lose not knowing.
0: And it's actually something joyful, the surprise, right? So one of the things I do is my car is a 2004 model, which... For some strange reason, even though I've been very successful in life, I could probably afford a car that is this year's model. But there is a love between me and that car that is actually probably the most environmentally friendly thing you can ever do. So I actually just renewed the license yesterday and looked at the fuel consumption report and the carbon footprint and so on and so forth, which is part of the service that they give you. And it's actually really interesting because we sell to the world that advancement is good for everyone, but I don't know if it is. I don't know if I, I like my very, really, really, really like my digital clock on the dashboard, right? Which actually doesn't, it's not very accurate, which involves an activity of actually changing it a little bit once a week or every two weeks or whatever. And those things are I don't know. I mean, I'm supposed to be a techie, but I love that. I think it's more responsible to not just create more cars and throw things away. I think it's more connected to actually deal with something that has a bit of a history to it, right? And I think with the internet, what we ended up doing is we also don't have those lasting relationships anymore. I have a conversation with someone, you know, one of my followers on Instagram and Yeah, maybe we chat back and forth two times and that's the end of it. We may never talk again, or if we do, maybe it will be in three, four, five, ten months' time. And there is no continuity to anything. There is no content that I can see again. There are no, like, the old movies that we want to watch over and over. If I liked a piece of content on Instagram and even if I saved it, I end up never really watching it again, ever, ever. So there's a lot lost.
1: There's a lot lost, but but here's the other weird thing. And this is what I think makes it complicated and interesting. At the same time, that conversation that you had, let's say it's 10 months ago, let's say it's two years ago, sticks to the internet. It's still there. It's up there. You can search for it. You could find it. So it doesn't really ever go away in the same way. That a conversation that we used to have, let's say with a person, whether just on a plain old telephone or actually in person, you'd have the conversation and be gone. You'd probably both forget what the conversation was about. There wasn't like text, a recording, a record of exactly what you said to each other that there now is and that's up there forever. And so, again, that has its positive and its negative effects. I mean, one thing is you can be like, you have a record of like, oh, no, 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 you said that. And on the other hand, You know, if you said something that you regret online, it's never going away. It's never going away. There's this great Ted Chang story called The Truth of Fact, The Truth of Feeling. I don't know if you're familiar with it. He wrote the story called The Story of Your Life, which was turned into the movie Arrival, Denis Villeneuve movie with um, Amy Adams and Jeremy Renner. In this story, The Truth of Fact, The Truth of Feeling, sort of two stories being told simultaneously. And one is in which people have a kind of digital memory device that's basically installed into their brains and you can instantly recall anything that's happened. So people think, oh, this is really going to improve things. It's going to improve marriages, for example, because you get into a fight and you say like, oh, no, 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 you said X. Like you can actually go back, you can rewind, find that recording and you can prove no, in fact, I never said that, you know, of course, does it lead to greater marital harmony? No, it ends up really screwing things up. And this story is interwoven with a story that takes place in Africa in which a formerly totally oral tradition community has someone come into their tribe who starts writing things down for legal reasons to help facilitate decisions that were used to be determined by a kind of judge-like figure, but only through oral testimony, and how that changes the way in which right and wrong and judgment is determined. So, yeah. And, yeah, you no. Know, so it's interesting, like, now everything is recorded, a lot of things are recorded, and they never go away. And, and it's interesting to think about, well, what are the implications of that? And what do we lose as a consequence?
0: Yeah, exactly. It's not what we gain only, it's also what we lose. So if I, if I asked you, of the things we lost to the internet, what would be the top five or top few that you would really, really want back?
1: For me personally, patience, productivity. Oh,
0: productivity. How did we lose productivity to the internet?
1: Because we're always playing whack-a-mole. I mean, I <laughs> Slack is one of the worst things, right? Because Slack, there's always a little number that's up there. And I'm a zero inbox person. I don't like to have a number that's showing up there. I want it to be zero. So even if I read it and deleted it instantaneously, I cannot have a number there, but Slack is worse because Slack, you can't really, I mean, you can, but it's not easy Mark things that you need to go back and attend to the way you can, and say a Gmail system where you sort of start or flag it or whatever. So, Slack, you're constantly just like, oh my God, whack a mole, try to get, knock them out, and read them, reply, read them, reply. And I will be trying to do that while I'm doing something like writing or editing a book review. But the Slacks come in and I can't stand to see that number. And so I'm, yeah, I'm doing a lot. I'm doing a lot. But is the result any greater? of the result of what I'm actually producing any greater I don't think so I think it's less so so productivity is one thing solitude solitude just not having other people intrude on my mental space or my time just to really feel like I'm alone, Uh, alone, willingly alone, not lonely. But of course, loneliness, I think, has increased as solitude has decreased because we're always aware that there are other people out there. They're always there. They're right outside. They're either there and they're knocking and they're emailing and they're texting and they're notifying or they're there and they're ignoring you and they're not liking your photo and they're not responding. And either way, they're there and you're aware of them. And so you're no longer It's no longer sort of just you on a Saturday morning, waking up, being like, it used to be on a Saturday morning, you wake up, no one would call that early in the morning, so that you'd had no threat of anyone reaching out that way. And the mail didn't come until 2 p.m., let's say, in the afternoon when the mailman delivered the post. And so, you know, you were just alone, but now you're not alone.
0: Never a minute, yeah.
1: Yeah, I miss empathy. I miss empathy. Empathy is definitely on its way out with the internet people are really mean when they don't have to see another person another human being's face confront the fact that they have feelings that they are complicated that they're not just one bad tweet and i miss boredom which is the first thing in the book and it sounds (laughs) like something that you like you shouldn't miss but for someone who is like not inherently zen person and i'm definitely not i'm not a successful meditator or anything. I miss the downtime. It's during the times where you don't have a constant flow of input that you generate output or when you just kind of sit and you're just with yourself. We don't have that anymore because you can always use that time to do something else.
0: Well, it is New Year's resolution time. I think for my listeners, we could probably try to investigate which of those can we include a little bit more of in our life? I mean, when you were talking, Pamela, I checked my email inboxes. One has 7,312 unread emails. The other has 4,164. And the third has 3,163. And I absolutely don't care. <laughs> it's really. Oh, different, wow. Yeah. And one of those includes my work email. Which basically is understood. My team understands fully that I, yeah, they can copy me if they want to, but I'm not going to read it, which is really interesting. I do struggle with the idea of missing boredom because I love boredom. I love sitting there and feeling my hands itching to go and grab that phone to just swipe on something stupid and then saying, you know what, I'm just going to sit with it and you give it a bit of time and then suddenly inspiration comes and reflection comes and maybe you call a friend and say, hey, let's go have a real, real good connection instead of uh, of all of that. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> absolutely love that book. I think everyone listening should definitely order it and look at where we've ended. I mean, it is so eye-opening and it's a beautiful work, really, in every possible way. I thank you for writing it, for opening my eyes and and the eyes of others to this. What can I say? I mean, thank you so much. It's really been an amazing conversation and quite an eye-opening conversation. I think it's... It's been a timely conversation, as I say, around New Year's resolutions, time for people to reflect and perhaps uh, smile as they think about the time where we could actually f- see each other face to face.
1: Well, it slowed down my morning in a good way. So so thank you.
0: <laughs> that was always, always the idea. For everyone listening, I cannot recommend Pamela's work enough, I think, All of her books are worth looking at, including the older ones. And definitely this one will open your eyes to quite a bit of uh, interesting ideas that you may include in your life that will add to your happiness. As Pamela said, I think this conversation was very much a slow-mo kind of conversation. It allowed you to find that little bit of time, despite how busy your day today is, to just come join us and slow down. Tell the world about it, tell your friends, tell us and tell me and Pamela, by the way, about what you think of what you missed on the internet. Tell us what you would want to bring with the internet and tell us what you want to bring back and answer the question that I asked Pamela. If you want find me on social media and tell me if I had this invention that would take you back to 1982, best year of music ever, would you actually go back and leave all of the advancements behind? I love you all for listening, and I will see you next time.